Why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to turn to Romans chapter 8, continuing this series. Now, I was uh, out the back. I'd popped out there after worship just for a, a moment's reprieve, only to get caught up in the business of the king, shall we say. And I just feel like there's a little prophetic reminder there for us that we are here to get caught up in his business. That he has come, he's coming again. But as Jesus himself encouraged and instructed us to seek first his kingdom. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to launch into the word this morning. So Father, we thank you for this moment that we remember some few thousand years ago as you proclaimed yourself to be the Messiah. The one who was promised and purposed before You laid the foundations of the world. We thank you that you came as our king, as our Lord and our savior, that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And I pray this morning, Lord, that there would be that reality afresh for each one of us of being caught up again in that reality of the king and his kingdom. Father, as we turn to your scriptures this morning, through the power of your spirit, would you speak to our hearts Our desire is that you would open our eyes to see you more, that you'd open our ears to hear what it is that your spirit is saying to us as your people, to each one of us. Mold us and make us into vessels, earthen vessels, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, but designed to house and hold the glory of the King of Kings. Make us a people who will shine brightly, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8. We're in this portion of scripture I asked last week for some suggestions as to favorite passages in the Bible. And I said openly with a disclaimer in front that this is no doubt one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's an incredible portion of scripture. This wonderful book of Romans as as Paul kind of reaches this Crescendo. In fact, uh, N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite modern theologians, he says this about Romans chapter 8. He says, this is a chapter that carries the power of the gospel in every breath. He says, if the church, if the church would just hoist its sails and catch the wind of Romans 8, there's no telling what might happen. Now, I believe there is that expectancy. There always is as we come to Scripture, as we hear the Word of the Lord proclaimed, as we invite His Spirit to enliven it to our hearts. But particularly this portion of Scripture, there are some truths in here that if we could only capture what it is that Paul is saying, what it is that God, through His Holy Spirit, has inspired the Apostle Paul to write for us, things would fundamentally change. There would be a fresh wind in the sails. We use one example of uh, John of of Kronstadt in, uh, forgive the pronunciation, who was a a Russian Orthodox priest who used to to pick the the alcoholics out of the gutter and he'd look with these eyes of compassion and love at them and he would say to them, this is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. And so this really is, in a similar way, Paul's, clarion call to us 
to those who would believe and grab a hold of what he has said Christ has done for us. He's saying this is profoundly significant. If you would grab a hold of the truth in this scripture, in this portion, then your life and the church and the world would never be the same again. That's, it's a bold and it's a big claim, but I, I want to underline and emphasize that for us to come with open hearts to hear what it is Jesus is saying to us this morning. Now, we began in Romans 8, and I said we've kind of been moving through roughly about a chapter a week, but we're spending more than one week, let's just put it that way, in this portion of Scripture, because there's a few fundamental things for us to grab a hold of. So we began last week. We talked about Romans 8.1. This is by way of review, but just to get us up to speed. Paul is saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. That's where he begins. He's saying this, this incredible gospel that he came to proclaim that has the power to save lives and to turn the world the right way up. He's saying this, this is the reality for you, is that you have been set free. This, this is the work of, you've been set free. There is freedom on offer. So we unpacked that, and then we jumped ahead a little to Romans 8.15 to talk about, well, what is the end of this freedom? What, what is its end goal? And the, the point from last week's message was freedoms by nature, and we see this in the world around us, in the natural as well in, as in the spiritual, freedoms are in conflict with one another. We talked about examples, for example, the freedom to spend versus the freedom to save. They're... Mutually exclusive, you cannot be spending and saving. If you find out a way to do that, please let me know. I'm very interested in that investment model and strategy. But the, the, the freedom to work or the freedom to enjoy leisure, freedoms are in conflict with one another. So what is the greater freedom? Well, it needs to be defined as some external truth or goal beyond. Freedom has to lead somewhere. Otherwise, it's just a freedom from, not a freedom for. What, what's the end goal? That's what determines what the greater freedom is. Is the goal to, to save or to spend? Is it to spend time in leisure, to spend time working? All of those could be worthy pursuits, could be the greater freedom depending on what the end goal is. We touched on the tragedy of this modern definition of freedom, which at times we buy into in the church, that freedom is just a product of our own desire. It's just doing whatever we feel like we would like to do. And the exact opposite is the case, that that leaves us entrapped in this prison of our own desire, the, the fleeting vapor of the momentary imagining of our hearts. And so Paul goes on, he talks about you've been set free, and then in verse 15 he says, and, and this is the kind of freedom. He says, for all who are led by the spirits of God, the Spirit of God, this is 14, are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's not enough. He says, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness. With our spirit, he's, he's, he's testifying. He's making sure we don't miss the reality of this. He's saying, this is who you are. That you are children of God. And 17, if that's not good enough, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He's saying this is the end goal, not, not a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of sonship. 
Now, I didn't say this last time, but I just wanted to, to clarify and to make known if there's anybody here, I'm sure you've heard us talk about sonship before, but if there's any ladies or gentlemen who are thinking, well, um, are we using this term as some kind of a, an outdated patriarchal system? There's, there's these notions and terms in the Bible. There's, there's sonship. We're also called sheep. At different times, we're called the bride of Christ. So these are, are pictures that have a powerful prophetic reality. So when we're talking about sons, it's important. Yes, that's sons and daughters. But the notion of sonship in Scripture is there for a purpose. And it carries with it this weight of identity, of status, of inheritance. It was the sons who inherited. And, and more than that, sonship carried this sense of mission and purpose. Your mission in life in this culture and time was to carry on the family name, if you, particularly if you were the eldest son. That was your mission in life, to, to work in the family business. Even Jesus himself in that culture, he worked in the family business. So everything that was attached to that name was yours. And yet that name also came with responsibility to do the work of your father. Who you are, everything you have, everything you do is viewed in the light of your family name. So this is going to lead us to the theme for this morning. You see, it's, it's, it's one thing as we read this scripture and we talk about this notion of we have been set free. That's who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are the beloved of God. And it's how we finished last week was in this picture. That's the foundational identity. That's... that's goes to the heart of what we were created for. We're created to know his love, to experience it. It's, it's foundational, it's important, it's the essence. If, if we don't have that reality, then we, we search and we, we live this, unfor- this is unfulfilled longing until we encounter that reality. It's what we're made for. But that's not the, pa- the place that Paul leaves us at. He doesn't just say, so that's, that's the moment that you are to experience this adoption and to know his love. That's the first step in the journey. But the second step is not just to know your adoption as sons, but it's actually to live as sons and daughters. Do you see the difference here? So where does freedom lead us? The freedom to be sons. You've been set free And that begins with knowing. But being free and living free are two very different things. Let's read some more on this portion of Scripture and we'll come back and unpack this a little bit. What I want to do is go just slightly further in Romans chapter 8 and then we're going to come back and actually fill in some of the pieces. I apologize if you've been around long enough. You'll know that we sort of do this backward forwards Bible study business. But we do get there in the end. So Romans 8, let's read from verse 18. It says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now grab the weight and this picture that Paul is painting here. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, for the unveiling, so it's really the translation, of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain 
the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It goes on, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait eagerly for the adoption of the sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now that's, that's an interesting passage. What does it mean? Well, to be honest, there's many aspects that I'd honestly say I have absolutely no idea. But what he is saying is he's saying there is this picture, and, and I want you to, 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 uh, to come with me on this, this platform, this, this truth that Paul is unfolding. He's saying there is freedom. There is freedom. He's saying this is what the freedom looks like. It's the freedom to be who you're created to be, sons and daughters. The Spirit bears witness. It's the Spirit's power that leads us into this place where we cry out, Abba, Father, where there's this this recognition and this realization, this experiential reality of His love. But then He doesn't leave it there. He goes on and He says, in fact, all creation was subjected to futility. And there's this this groaning and this yearning for what? The, The revealing of the sons of God that they would taste of, if you like, Or be caught up in the glorious freedom of the sons of God. In fact, if you read the rest of the chapter here, you'll see there is this tension. There's this tension here that is continually put forward by Paul. He's talking about you are free, but being free and living free are two very different things. Let me use this, uh, it's a very commonly used favorite preacher's story. I don't think I've used it, but I may well have, but you've probably heard the story before. But there was a a farmer who uh, had a bunch of chickens on his farm, and at one point in time in his journey, he came across this, this grand, majestic bird of prey, this eagle. And so he thought, well, this eagle was clearly, was a young, young eagle, was clearly uh, injured, he took it under his care, he put it in with the chickens, he, he fed it, he looked after it. And as time went by, this, this eagle began to grow and to mature. And one of his friends came along one day and he said, what, what are you doing with a, an eagle in the chicken pen? Like that's, it was born for more than that. It wasn't born for scratching around with the chickens. You've got to set this thing free. So as the story goes, the farmer, he, he opened up the, the chicken barnyard. But this thing, it was so used to being a chicken, it knew nothing else. So he picked it up and he set it outside the pan. He said, you're, you're, you're separate. That's not you. You're so so it, it released it. And, and still, it just kept scratching around like a, like a chicken. It just, all it had known was being a chicken. That's, that's who I am. And it wasn't until one day he said, I know what to do after many failed attempts. And he took this eagle to the, the heights of a, a mountain vista. And as the wind blew and this eagle looked out and caught a glimpse of this endless horizon that something just awakened within it and it spread its wings and it took off. It finally discovered what it was meant to be and to live for. And it's it's the same reality for us. It's one thing to be set free. It's one thing to have the chicken pen open, to be free. That's, that's really what we've talked about so far. We've said Jesus has set us free. We'd say yes, we, we agree, hopefully, most of us here. 
We've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been set free. But it's another thing for us to learn to live in that freedom. And Paul is saying that's, that's the desire of God. Not just that you would know what it is to be set free, but that you would live in the freedom that he offers. Let's think that through. Let's wrestle that through. Let me give you a couple of different examples. We've uh, admired some of the creative displays throughout the, uh, the past month. And this one here was, was present also last week. And in fact, I used that as an illustration to talk through this, this notion, this fundamental reality and this incredible picture of a God who is our deliverer. He has brought us out of captivity into freedom. And that's what this picture, of course, represents, which was uh, the final act as God delivered the uh, nation of Israel from captivity. And, of course, they were covered under the blood of the Passover lamb, incredible picture of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a moment, they went from that place of captivity under the, the lordship, the dominion of um, the Pharaoh into a place of freedom. So in a moment, they were set free. In a moment, they were delivered from Egypt. But of course, as we all know, although they were delivered from Egypt in a moment, it took 40 years plus in the desert to get the Egypt out of them. In fact, this account, if you, uh, if you read on, a matter of weeks later from this incredible act of deliverance, the people were free. Exodus 32, it, it recounts that Moses had gone up the mountain and that was God's intention to bring the people to the foot of the mountain that he himself would meet and commune in covenant. Of course, they said, no, we'll stand at a distance. It's all too much. They send Moses up. And as Moses is up the mountain, what happens? They get up to mischief, don't they? They say, well, he's gone. Who knows when he's coming back? Let's just create a, a golden calf. And so they grab Aaron, who was the high priest of the time, and he says, well, give me all of your, your gold and your jewelry. And he makes his golden calf. We all know this story very well. What we sometimes miss is Exodus 32, 5, there's this, Little reference as Aaron has made this calf, as um, the, the, the people have instructed him to do. And he literally says this. He says, and when Aaron saw that, that is the completed calf that he had made, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made this proclamation saying, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now, that's a fascinating word there because that, the word Lord is the covenant word Yahweh. And so this, this whole scenario has happened. People have said, well, we need to make this, this idol. We need to fashion God into an image. And then Aaron, and it's one of those moments, isn't, isn't it, where I'd love a bit more information. Like, what was Aaron's motivation? Like, was he completely deceived and there was wickedness in his heart, perhaps? Was he pacifying the people? The people are coming against him, saying, you've got to do this. We're lost out here in the desert. We've got no God. Maybe that was a part of it. But it seems to me that a part of it, at least, and I'm just presuming here, we don't know for certain, but it seems like a part, at least, was him trying to do the right thing. It's like, well, maybe he's trying to make the best of a bad situation. We've got this golden calf, but let's at least call it a feast to the Lord. Let's at least try and take the, the systems of the world, if you like, and put a good spin on them, whack the name of Yahweh there, and you know, it, maybe that will appease the Lord, or maybe that will, maybe, maybe he thought this is a good thing. This is actually a great thing. We can just take some of these pagan practices, and we can just say, well, now it's all in the name of Yahweh. And if you want to know how the Lord felt about that, you just read a couple of verses later, and he says to Moses, 
well, I'm, I'm coming to consume this people in my wrath. And it's all Moses can do to say, no, hang on, God, don't do that. You know, just what, what are people going to think? You just brought these people out to consume them in your fire. But there seems to me in this whole account, there's at least this part of Aaron, perhaps the people who weren't so much turning away from God, they were just turning back to their own ways and slapping the name of Yahweh upon that which they were doing. Of course, the Lord is, is, is consumed with his, with his anger and his disappointment with the people. Because this was God's intent as he brought them out. It was not just for them to be a people who lived without the dominion of Egypt, but still lived in the captivity of Egypt. It wasn't that they just changed physical location and then continued on the same practices and ways of thinking and ways of worshipping. This was not a rebranded Egypt. Jesus is bringing his people, not, not just setting them free, but calling them to live in freedom, to be his people, to display his heart, his covenant people, his glory on the earth. And that's what we see in, in, in that, and, and that is a picture as well of our walk with Christ, the second commandment. I mean, the first is, you shall not have any other gods. I'm the only one you should worship. The second one is, do not take the name of of the Lord in vain. And often we think that means, well, don't use the name of the Lord as a swear word, which certainly that's not a good idea. That's applicable. But it's more than that. It's actually the Lord himself saying, you've got to recognize this. You bear my name. I've covenanted. Like, like a marriage covenant, you've taken on my name. Do not take my name in vain. Like that was his desire in his heart, not for them to just be free, but for them to live free. It, it should look different. There's, there's new life. There's his, his provision every morning. He provides them food. He provides them water from the rock. He leads them with his glory. The, the pillar of fire, the, the cloud, like he's, he's there in the midst, the tabernacle. It's all designed to say, this is not just Egypt phase two. Like, I'm doing something new. I'm, I'm teaching and I'm showing you how it is that you truly live in freedom. Not just that you've been set free, but that you're living in a different way. Displaying his glory in his name. And so for us, the application is this. Christ has come. He delivers us in a moment. We talked about justification by faith. We talked about this, this reality that for, there is no condemnation because who could bring anything against us? The legal requirements have been fulfilled. You have been set free. You have. And that's a wonderful, glorious place to rest. And to live and to dwell. We, we don't move from that place. But there is another step. Not just to live in that place, but to live from that place. Not just to know what it is to be set free, but to actually live free. And all through this passage, he talks about being led by the Spirit, through the Spirit's power. 
Desire the things of the Spirit. Seek the things that are on the heart of the Lord. Through His power, put to death the things that need to be put to death. God is looking for people who've not only been set free, they're living set free. And in the same way, in this scenario here, we see a moment of deliverance and then a lifetime of teaching them to live in that freedom. I believe the same is true for us. We're set free in a moment, but he's teaching us to live free. What, what does that mean and what does that look like? I want to give us a couple of examples and then we'll see what the Lord wants to do. You know, I was just thinking about this during the week. And this is an interesting example. We'll just put it out there. See how we go. But I... I I was reading some articles, and I don't know whether uh, many of you have come across some of the, the recent work that's done in, been done in our own country by the charity regulator, the, ANC, the ACNC, in terms of delving into the financial dealings of some of the big churches in our own country. And I'm deliberately leaving this vague because um, I think this applies to all of us, and I'm not trying to isolate anyone, and I also know that at times... Decisions like this actually come from a good place. But here was my, um, my moment with the Lord as I was reading through some of this research and the ACNC is uncovering, uncovering all sorts of financial dealings, not just in our own country, but there was these relationships formed with other bigger churches around uh, the US and various different things. You can, you can do the research and the reading if you're interested. But, for example, there was this... Um, mutual preaching circuit arrangement where churches would all put hundreds of thousands of dollars to sign up to this um, preaching circuit that you then get access to and then people who are on that that particular network would go to these churches and be paid um, exorbitant amounts of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars to put on conferences. And so, you know, the government was interested in just peeling back and saying, well, is this a good thing? Is this a right thing? Not even going to go there. Um, although you don't see Peter and Paul on the scriptures writing the preaching circuit for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but we'll move on from that. The, the, the thing that came out of that was this quote, and again, I'm not going to tell you who it's from, normally I would, only because I think this well, defeats the purpose of what I'm trying to illustrate here. But this was the quote. When he was asked, he said, well, is, you know, what, is, what is the church doing? Is this a good thing? And he responded in this way. This is a quote from a pastor of one of these big churches in the US. He says, I've had a look, and, and I can tell you there is nothing here that in any way is unremarkable. This is simply a commercial arrangement run exactly the way all similar commercial arrangements run. That was his quote. And in some ways, it's an innocuous quote. And in some ways, you understand how with the best of intentions, perhaps the way as Aaron did with the golden calf, he's like, well, you know, this, this is all in the name of the Lord. So why can't we run things just the way that the world runs them? My question for us, and that's why I'm not trying to name and shame anybody, I'm just trying to peel back beneath the surface to get under to the truth that drives some of these things for us. You see, if we're building systems that aren't any different than the world, then what is it that stops us just from being a rebranded Egypt? The systems are all the same. If they're overtly and intentionally worldly, then how is it 
that we can claim to be any different than the systems and processes of the world. And I make that observation, I know it's a little, it's a little heavy and quiet in here, for this reason. I think one of the biggest traps that we fall into as churches, and I'm saying this as a pastor, and we'll talk about each of us individually in a moment, is that there is this focus on employing worldly systems. It just is. See, we're wondering why we produce worldly Christians, and even at times when we talk about, well, we're, we're kingdom people and we're building kingdom, you know, building the kingdom based on kingdom principles and values, once you peel back the surface, there's no different. There's, there's no difference in the way that we run and organize things than there is any other commercial venture. And I don't want to be critical because I know often at times this comes from a good place. Often there is a sense of, well, it's, this is for the Lord. We're, you know, if, if we want to reach people with the gospel, we've got to pay hundreds of thousands to get the keynote speakers. We've got to put on the big conferences. We've got to, we've got to all of this. And, and my wrestle and my encouragement for us, and, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but how much is this us simply trying to replicate worldly principles and procedures? And if that's what we're building the kingdom on, then what are we expecting to come out the other end? Is there a different way that we can live? And Paul, remember this, he will go on in Romans 12, and we touched on this as we began the series, and he'll say this, after he says, present your body as a living sacrifice, that is the only acceptable worship in view of who he is, the light of his glorious grace. But he'll go on and he'll say, do not be, what? Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to the principles or the ways of the world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's move on from those slightly uncomfortable looking at the church. Uh, but I do, you know, we've, here's the point in the midst of me saying that. You know, we talked a lot about personal repentance, um, and I believe that is, is key. In this season, the Lord is calling his church back to a personal repentance. But I also believe corporately the Lord is calling the church back to reformation, to move away from just building on worldly principles and saying the kingdom of God, it looks different. It is different. It's not just Egypt part two and building things. If, like, if we're truly to fulfill the call, then there's got to be a reformation within the church. <sighs> Deep breath. All right, let's, let's bring this down to a personal... Thank you for those five people who are encouraged by that. That's very encouraging up here. Let's, let's just think this through personally because it's one thing to have it out there. But we live in a world that, that has systems, don't we? Paul's saying, do not be conformed. Don't be conformed. Don't do things the ways of the world. And there's one of, this, one of these incredible passages in Matthew 5 to 7. And he talks about things like this. In verse 19 of chapter 6, he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Moths and vermin are just going to destroy them. Thieves will break in, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Verse 24, it talks about you can't serve two masters. Either you love one and hate the other. Who, who are you really going to be devoted to? 
Verse 31, he goes on. So don't worry saying, well, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? And this always grabs me. He says, for the pagans or for the Gentiles, for the, unbelie- for the people who don't know God, that is what consumes their lives. That is. That's the systems of the world. What else is there? It's about what I eat and what I drink. It's about the nice photo on Instagram. It's about, it's, it's about that. That's the systems. He's saying, not you. Don't run after these things. The Gentiles are running after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need him. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So on a personal level, how much of our lives is lived in and built upon and consumed by those worldly pursuits? Like hopefully for you as for me, that's a little disconcerting and uncomfortable. And sometimes it even comes from a good place. Well, that's important. You know, God cares. Yes, he does. It says God cares about it. He's just saying there should be a profound difference in our lives as Christians. So that's the other other question is if you examined your life to those around you, would there be any noticeable difference? Would there? Or is there aspects and parts of that that were like, well, actually... The passions and desires, the things that consume me, the day-to-day, you know, probably not really. There's probably no noticeable difference. And my loving encouragement to myself as to each and every one of us here is that God has set us free, not just to live in Egypt part two. It's not just a rebranded where we do exactly everything we did before, but we create an altar and say, well, it's all to you, Lord. Paul is talking about a very different kind of freedom, a very different kind of way to live, a life free from anxiety, a life free from worry, a life that trusts completely in him. Let's look at one more passage of Scripture. I hope this is making sense somewhere along the line, but go, go to Matthew just to make it even more interesting than it already is. I want to look at this this miracle of Jesus, which is one of the most unusual but and strange, but incredibly important accounts we read. Matthew 17, verse 24. It says, when they came to Capernaum. So this is Jesus and the disciples. And interestingly, this is Peter's hometown. So he knows people around here. He's familiar with um, the lay of the land. And it says... The collectors of the two drachma tax, um, just pause there for a moment as well. So at that time in the culture, there was two separate lots of taxes. You paid tax to the Romans, but you also paid and it was expected that you'd pay tax to the temple. So let's just talk about the temple tax. So the collectors of the, the two drachma temple tax went up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Good old Peter. He just sort of speaks before he thinks, doesn't he? He doesn't say, well, let me check with Jesus. I'll get back to you. Yes, yes. I don't think he even quite knows what, he, what it is he's saying. And so when he comes into the house, comes back to see Jesus, Jesus speaks to him first. I love that. Jesus knows exactly what's happened. It's like, I, I, I know. Let me, let me just sort this one out, Peter. Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? He said to him, well, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, this is key, verse 27, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, what do you make of that? What a strange miracle to throw in the midst of a sermon. I think a couple of things. First of all, Jesus is trying to teach Simon or Peter a lesson. And there's really two aspects to the lesson. That people have come, he's presumably been caught up in it. Well, don't you pay the tax? Oh, yes, you know, well, of course we do, you know. And, and Jesus doesn't rebuke that in him. He doesn't say, well, and maybe some of us would prefer if Jesus went down this, this path. It says, well, no, you're to resist this system. This is a worldly system. It's not of me. Resist it and stand against it. He doesn't say that, does it? As I said, some of us would probably prefer a bit of a call to arms and... But he doesn't. He says, there, there are duties for you to fulfill as a citizen. It's your responsible thing to do. In fact, we find that message throughout Scripture. We want to honor our authorities. We want to love those that God's allowed to be in power. We want to pay the taxes. But at the same time, he's saying, but Peter, here's what I want, you to, rem- want, want to remind you. Who pays taxes? Is it the sons? No, the sons are free. So I want to remind you that there is another realm, if you like, there's another kingdom in which you operate and exist. And so he gives him one of the weirdest miracles, doesn't he? He could have said, look, Peter, just pull out some savings. Go and ask Big John. Ask Judas. He's got the... It, it, there could have been any other methods that he gave to um, encourage Peter to pay the tax. But he doesn't. He uses this incredible miracle where he says to Peter, you go and fish and you pull out this fish and there'll be a coin. What is he trying to illustrate and demonstrate? There is a freedom that exists for the sons of God. There is a freedom. He's saying, do not forget who you are. Your hope, your trust, your provision. It's not in the system of man. It's in the kingdom of God. See, in, in this world, there's duties for, to, to, to fulfill. And I don't want you to hear this sermon and say, well, you know, the pastor told me I'm to quit my job and go fishing. Because believe me, that happens. That's how I honor the Lord. I just fish for the rest of my life. I don't work a day. That, that's, that's not the message and the heart. There is a world around us. We are in the world. We are called to live in the world. We are. We're called to do what is right. Paul in his pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus encourages people. Tell them not to be lazy. Work a job. Earn a living. Like that, that's, that's not a bad thing. You will live in the world. But here is the thing. You are not of the world. You are free. You're not called to just live within these systems. You're called to follow me, the king in his kingdom. How free was Jesus? Well, he walked upon water. He was free from gravity. He multiplies bread. He's free from the natural course of... That doesn't normally happen. I don't know if you've tried that miracle, hoping. Catherine joked about it before. We'll just pray and bless the food. He speaks to the wind and the waves. And so there, there is this sense as 
Jesus teaches Peter in this example, as Paul is proclaiming as he writes this incredible message of the freedom that we find in the gospel. He's saying all of creation is groaning in an eager expectation because God has set a people free, but now he's really calling them to live free. Not just to be caught up in the systems of the even for good motivations. It's not Egypt part two. It's this whole new way of living that shapes everything. Shapes our desires. Shapes our delights. It shapes our motivation. If we can get the Adam, whoever's coming back up there. It's a very different thing to be free than it is to live free. How free can we be? Well, to be honest, at times I just test the water, you know. Just uh, There's no limits on the freedom. But the hard issue is who are we going to trust in? I just want you to close your eyes and ask a few questions as we kind of bring this to a close. As we pray for a a reformation, not just in the church, but in our understanding of what it truly means to be the sons and the daughters of the living God, to have that shape who we are and what we do. We are in the world, but not of the world. So where is it that we turn when you get that bad doctor's report? You're in the doctor's office. The doctor says, well, there's nothing else we can do. Do we turn, as often is the case, to every avenue other than God? Regularly have people, I've tried this and I've tried this and have you tried God? Oh. Not saying that the Lord won't use doctors and medicine, but where do we first turn? What do we have when the rumbles of Economic disaster are felt and heard around the world. Do we have greater faith in the banks and the systems of this world? Or greater faith in the God who promised to provide for all of our needs? What do we seek with greater passion if we're truly honest? Is it the treasures of this world where moth and rust destroy Or is it the treasures in heaven that are eternal? Which has the greater appeal, the pleasures that the world offers or the pleasure that we find at God's right hand? What is it that dominates our thinking? Is it the phone call? The job? Is it the systems and the structures of this world? The worldly plans we can make for advancing and achievements. And as I said, we're called to be wise stewards. We're called called to plan. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But is it truly driving? As Jesus himself preaches and proclaims, "This this is the path, the glorious freedom. To seek first his kingdom 
Let the Gentiles worry about all the, the details. Let's be a people that know not just what it is to be free. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Let's learn to live as a people who know what it is to live in that kind of freedom. That kind of freedom. I think if we're honest, and this is my prayer this morning, for most of us, we probably know and we've had that sense, I pray, of being delivered from Egypt, of having our sins forgiven. Now, if you're here this morning and that's not the case, then I would love to pray with you this morning. It's one small step from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light as we look away. Though our sins be as scarlet, his blood can wash us wider than the That's available this morning. But particularly, I want to pray for all of us. Not just that reality of being forgiven and of being loved, of coming out of Egypt, but of having the Lord deal with the Egypt that's still in us. What truly is that? foundation that you build your life upon what truly drives our hearts what truly is that fountain of joy so Heavenly Father I just pray for us this morning ask that there be a moment just here before we rush off into the day and a new week just to do business with you. But I pray that that picture that Paul talks about in Romans of all creation groaning of this exhortation of this almost longing of a people, the people that you would call by name to be unveiled to walk in the kind of freedom that you yourself walked in and that you call us, each and every one of us, to live our lives, drinking from that fountain, rejoicing in the glorious freedom of the sons of God. Lord, I pray this morning that this would be a morning of just seeing you dismantle some of those systems that we've built, some intentionally, some perhaps unknowingly, some even from good places, and bringing us back to that place of trust, because that's what the heart of the issue is. It's who will we trust? we trust. I pray, Lord, as as you through the power of your Spirit, just shine your light in our hearts, that there be a grace this morning 
to allow you to move us from that place. Take us out of Egypt. Take the Egypt out of us. May we be interrupted by and caught up again by your kingdom business, by this glorious unfolding of your salvation.